Thank you for listening to the Moral Revolution Podcast. In this session, Chris Vallotton will be sharing a message entitled, A Culture of Greatness. So we, we, talk, we were talking about um, it standing in the presence of kings, and, and last week we talked about, um, we've been talking about vision and, and envisioning people, and, and um, I shared the story of Walt Disney and how at, um, at Walt Disney, when they opened Disney World, that Walt had already um, passed on. He'd been dead about five years, and somebody came to him. They were they, that Walt Disney, the Disney World was in, you know, the process of construction. It was actually his greatest dream was was uh, Disneyland, Disney World, and so he had passed on by the time they had finished. And during the dedication, they said uh, a, one person came up to Roy Disney, uh, um, Walt Disney's brother during the uh, commissioning, during the uh, inauguration of the Disney World, the ribbon-cutting uh, ceremony. And they said, oh, if only Walt were here to see this. And Roy turned to him and said, he did or you wouldn't have. And so we talked about last week the power of vision and how vision is what impregnates people with the dreams of God. And how when we, we have a vision from God, it, it gives our life purpose. Vision gives pain a purpose. And when we, we have a real vision from God, we, you know, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says, Without a vision, people perish, but happy is he who keeps the law. And last week we talked about that verse and the fact that, that that isn't the law of Moses that people keep when they have a vision. It's the law of constraint. In other words, when you have a vision, you will constrain your options. If you have a vision for a great body, you will, you'll eat the right kind of food, you'll, you'll, you'll exercise, you'll do the things it takes to, have, to, to capture that vision for a great body, or if you have a vision for um, you know, an, an orphanage, or you have a vision to build a building, or whatever it is that you do, once you've captured a vision for it, you, there's this thing inside of you that wants it so bad that you'll restrain your options to capture the vision. But it says without a vision, people go unrestrained. And last week we talked about the fact that when you don't have a vision, that, that you, you basically live to stay out of pain or to find pleasure. So it's vision that takes us through the hard seasons of life. It's vision that causes us to apprehend the dreams of God. And it's, it's, it's also a sign that the Holy Spirit has has actually rested on us. In Acts 2, 17, 18, and 19, you know these verses well. It says, In the last days I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your, uh, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And so visions and dreams are a sign of the very presence of God. When people begin to dream, when, when young men see visions, when old men dream dreams. And in that, in that verse, I, I think the context of that verse would bear this out, that he's not just talking about old men going to sleep and having a dream. I think he's talking about the fact that when the Holy Spirit comes on you, that you begin to dream again. You begin to have hope again. And you know, all of us, as, as, we've, as we've gotten older, the tendency in life is to, you know, someone comes to you, like I've been in business for 20 years, and I, I failed in business the last three years of my business. And when somebody comes and says, man, I want to start a business, the first thing you want to do as an older person is tell them all the things that can go wrong. And, uh, you know, we've, and when somebody comes and says, I'm going to be an astronaut, in Manning's example, or I'm going to be an actress, or I'm going to be the President of the United States, you know, when you get older, you, you, you know that between the promise and the palace is the process. And 
Some people don't make the cut, so to speak. You know, young men say, I want to play for the NFL or I want to be in the NBA. And we all know that, you know, thousands and thousands of people want to play for the NFL. And yet there's just very few who do it. And, and, we, and when we get older, we, we, we can tend to get cynical and, and start to, you know, our, our, we, we almost think it's our you know, part of our responsibility to kind of tone them down and let them know that that's probably not going to happen. And yet when the Holy Spirit comes on a people, it says, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And I love this. It says, and old men are going to begin to dream again. Instead of the place of old men being, you know what, you just tone it down. That's probably not going to happen. Old men begin to dream again. Old men begin to have hope again. Old men stop complaining about the culture and become a catalyst to a revival. And so we've been talking about that, that, that it's time to dream again. It's time to have vision again. And, and we're talking about the, this is all review. We're talking about the difference between good leaders and great leaders. I mean, all good or great leaders have character, great character. How many of you know that? But great leaders have the ability to envision other people. In other words, they don't just have a vision, but they are able to impart it or impregnate other people with the visions of God. With the, with, with, they, can, they, take, they can take what they see in them and they can, they can give it to, to other people so that not only, do they want to, not only can they repeat it, but they can actually envision it. They can actually see it in themselves. And so we, we're talking about that. And, and tonight I want to talk a little bit... Um, about the culture of, of greatness. I guess like living in the land of the giants. What happens when people have great vision and they begin to dream? It creates a culture, doesn't it? And um, I, uh, I just finished a book. In fact, I, I'll finish it Monday. But one of the chapters is called Living in the Land of the Giants. And I've been kind of studying different people in the Bible who, had, who became great and who had great dreams. And I've just kind of been going through their stories, and not just in the Bible, but also in history. Like, what things did people who became great have in common? And one of them you would already guess, that everybody that's ever became great had a vision that there was greatness inside of them. Um, I was talking to Banning. This is probably two years old, Banning and Dan. We were just sitting in Dan's office, just kind of just actually throwing out different stories. And Banning has a real love for biographies. He loves biographies and autobiographies of great people and um, revivalists and, and political people are most of his favorites. And he was telling us about the, that he had read, I, don't, I forget how many biographies, and he said, you know, I notice um, that all great people that I've ever read about, every biography I ever read about, they all had one thing in common. And, and I said, well, what, what is that? He said, they all believed that they were going to be great even when they were young. And I was thinking, you know, what's, what's kind of funny is, is that every young person thinks they're going to be great. Like, you almost have to train that out of them. You know, if you watch little kids play, what do they want to be? Well, they want to be Superman or Spider-Man or the beautiful princess. They, no, nobody wants to be the garbage man or the loser. I mean, when you're a little kid, you're like, I think I'll be a drug addict when I'm a kid, you know, when I grow up, you know? No, I mean, we, we want to be, there is something about childlikeness that says, I think I'll be a fireman. I think I'll be whoever feels significant in our culture we want to be. And um, so I think there's a sense, there's a childlike sense that, that greatness is in our life. And I want to just um, turn to Genesis chapter 37. And I guess I want to just begin by talking about um, a culture of greatness. And how many of you know that every culture has its side effects? Are you guys with me? And Bill talked about it um, briefly today. But he, he talked about um, how when, when, 
the Lord pours out grace, when it rains grace, metaphorically speaking, that what grows in our garden is seeds, not necessarily all good seeds, but whatever has been seeded in the garden of our heart begins to grow when God pours out grace. Do you remember that? And, and Bill talked about, he gave an example, and I thought it was a great example this morning, of how in controlling cultures or religious cultures, we tend to, we tend to take those, those uh, the, the, wheat, the wheat and the tares or uh, the, the weeds of our life, and instead of allowing them to grow, we cut them like a lawn. Have you ever seen a beautiful green lawn? Like my lawn, my lawn sucks. <laughs> Seriously. I can always tell because if I don't cut that lawn for about three weeks, it looks like a jungle because it's really just a whole bunch of weeds that I water a bunch. And when I cut it, it looks beautiful. But when I let it grow, you can tell it's just really weeds with a little bit of grass in it. And, and uh, you were given an example this morning of how religion cuts, you know, cuts everybody the same. I mean, cuts, it like, cuts us all like a lawn. We all look the same. But underneath, underneath that religious culture are things that are not good, but they never get to grow up. And when we water the seeds of grace, when God pours out grace on our life, the, the rain of grace, so to speak, and we begin to let things grow, and we begin to empower people, we create an empowering culture where people can can succeed, and it means that in order to be able to succeed, you have to be able to fail, which Bill was talking about this morning. I mean, you, there's no such thing as being able to succeed without being able to fail. And when we water those, that, those seeds in our life, things come up in our life, and we're like, wow, what's that? And we're like, that's you. <laughs> have you ever had a that's you moment in your life? When you're like, what the heck? You know, Who's that in the mirror? It's like, <laughs> anyway. How many of you have ever had that's me moment and it, it wasn't a great that's me moment? And you know, we're, we're all about, you know, you're amazing, you're a royal priesthood, and I even wrote a book about it, and it's a good book, I'm going to read it again someday. <laughs> but, but every culture, every culture has its side effects. In other words, God planted a beautiful garden, and Bill shared a little bit about this this morning. He planted a beautiful garden. He put two trees in a garden. And how many know that the uh, ramifications of God not being controlling is that Adam and Eve chose the wrong tree? In fact, God put lots of trees in the garden. He just had one tree they couldn't eat from. Out of all the choices, they had one tree they couldn't eat from. Probably there was hundreds of trees in the garden. There was a tree of life, but there was hundreds of other trees in the garden. God only said, don't eat from this one tree, and... And how many of you know that even though they had hundreds of choices, they chose the one thing God told them not to do? And that's the risk of an empowering culture is that you can choose a tree you're not supposed to choose. You, 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 can't, you can't create a culture of greatness unless you create a culture of choices. Because in order to choose to be great, you have to choose to be a loser. No, no. In order to choose to be great, you have to have the ability to choose to be a loser. Boy, that little word... You missed that. You really, the whole sermon sucks, doesn't it? Is Howard here now? <laughs> Gosh, repeat that in your head a couple times. That'll give you an anxiety attack. Anyway, so I want to I talk about um, a little bit tonight about the side effects of a culture of greatness. Because we've been talking about standing in the presence of a king and we've been talking about you know, the, the, um, the desire for greatness and, and how humility isn't feeling bad about yourself, but it's just remembering that 
that everything that you have that's good in your life came from God. It's remembering the source of your greatness. How many of you know, as soon as you forget the source of your greatness, arrogance and pride is automatically in your life. And so we talked a little bit about that. Let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 37. And I think we'll probably, well, let's just go from verse 1. Now Jacob, um, am I right? 37, yes. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock of his brothers while he was still a youth, along with his wives and his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph. Verse 3 is where I really want to start. It, now Israel loved Joseph. You like this coat? This is a nice coat, isn't it? Okay, good. I should have uh, preached about humility tonight. Oh no, that's just, I can't. I have to show you my body. Because uh, I'm preaching on jealousy tonight. So, uh, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all the sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a varied colored tunic. And his brothers saw, when his, his brothers saw that their father loved him, more than all of his brothers, so they hated him, and Joseph could not speak to them on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to my dream, which I've had. For behold, I was binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you actually going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And he had still another dream, and he related it to his brothers and said, Lo, that's still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow, your, bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were very jealous of him. But his father kept his saying in his mind. And then it goes on. Let's see. I got here verse 15. A man found... uh, Well, I think I can tell you the rest of the story. Verse 18. When they saw him from a distance, speaking of Joseph, and uh, he was coming to meet his brothers, before he came close, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits... And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. And let us see what would become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let's not take his life. And you know the rest of the story. They throw him into a pit and uh, the, uh, they ended up selling him into slavery and so on and so forth. But I just wanted to start tonight by, we kind of left off last week talking about dreamers and having a vision and dreaming God's dreams and and just creating a culture where people can become great. Because without, a, without people becoming great, how many of you know that we're, Jesus said make, he said, make disciples of all nations. And last week we talked about Genesis 18 where, where God said to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And how many of you know that we're not called to just disciple people, we're called to disciple nations. And it means that we need to grow into our call. We need to be able to grow into a place 
where we become a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. But the side effects of greatness are, are that greatness often creates a culture of jealousy, competition, envy. And I want to talk a little bit about that tonight. You'll notice that Joseph is, he's a dreamer. He has this dream that he's going to be awesome. And what's the immediate response of the people around him? He hasn't even become great yet. All he has is a dream for his life that he's someday going to be a ruler. And his brothers are instantly jealous of him. And his father, it's interesting the different responses. His brothers are jealous of him. His father rebukes him, but he carries it in his heart. Probably, I'm just now I'm reading into this, but father, probably his father is rebuking him more for the fact that he's not using wisdom in the way he's sharing his dreams, in, in, rather than the fact that he's having one. Because he carries the fact that Joseph's going to be great in his heart. It's funny that you can tell the difference between brothers and fathers, because fathers dream the dreams with their sons, and they want their sons, their daughters, if you will. When I say fathers, I'm not talking about gender, by the way. Mothers, fathers, I'm including those. Um, mothers and fathers, when they hear the dreams of their sons and daughters, if you, I don't mean somebody who's, who's um, been a sperm donor, because that's not a father. I'm not talking about someone who can reproduce something. I'm talking about a true father. A true father, a true mother, is somebody who sees their sons and daughters' dreams as something that they want to help empower and see them come true. In fact, Jesus said this. He said, greater works shall you do when I go to be with the Father. And how many of you know that although that Jesus was the, um, he was, he, he was the eternal son, he was also the everlasting father. Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7, that Jesus was called the everlasting father. And how many of you know that you have to be a son before you can be a father? I, I just want to stop for just a minute. I just was talking to somebody the other day, and I, I don't know how this is going to fit in, but I just feel like I'm supposed to share it. Something happens when we miss an epic season. Um, um, let's see if I can put this to words. I know the concept's true, because I know the Holy Spirit was teaching me this about a couple of years ago. But something happens when you miss an epic season. For instance, um, Africa, I've talked um, a lot about Africa because I love Africa. We work um, quite a bit in Africa. I've been there a few times. And, um, but here's, my, here's part of the, the struggle I see, and not just Africa, but I just use Africa because I happen to be familiar with some of the, some of the continent. Um, and obviously, I haven't been to every country in Africa. I've been to three or four, so there's probably, uh, you know, that's a large continent. But here's what I see in part of Africa. They had, they had an agricultural age, they missed the industrial age, and, they, and they've come into the information age. And the odd thing is, is you'll go out into some of the jungles, and you'll see the Africans who have a hut and no running water with a cell phone. It's really, I, you know, I know we're, it's, we're laughing about it right now, but there's something, I, I don't know if I can put that to words. It's what happens when you miss an epic season. The, you, you, they had an agricultural age, they totally missed the industrial age, and they find themselves ill-prepared for the information age because they missed an age. They missed a step. Do you know what I'm saying? It's part of what happens when you have sons, but you've never been one. It's what happens when you have daughters, but you've never been one. There's, and I think that part of the struggle is 
that if you have sons, you have daughters. In other words, you have people, and I'm not even talking about naturally born now. Obviously, that would include that. But, but you, let's just say you have spiritual sons, you have spiritual daughters, but you've actually never been a son or a daughter. I think that, the, that part of the manifestation of that is that instead of empowering your sons, you tend to control them because you've never been a son who's been empowered. I guess that's a Selah. You're looking at me like I didn't explain that very well, and it's because I did it. Because that's all I know. But I'm, I'm intrigued by the way that Joseph's father embraces his dream and takes it into his heart, but his brothers want to kill him. And I want to I say this, that, that jealousy and murder, they're kissing cousins. And if you open that door to jealousy in your heart, you begin to be, something happens in you that you don't maybe want to happen, but something evil gets, it starts to be involved in your life. How many of you have ever had a big problem that when you finally solved it, it was a little issue? <laughs> like, like so, have you ever thought like, Someone comes to you and goes, you know, there's this little attitude in you, and you're having this big problem, and they're like, you know, I see this attitude in you that's kind of, and you're like, well, this big problem can't be that little attitude. But how many of you know that, that terrible robbers can get in through a small crack in a door? There's just something about leaving your door unlocked. And um, I, in, um, in fact, why don't we just turn to, turn to James chapter 3. Verse 14, uh, verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness and wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not from that which comes down from above, but earthly, natural, and what's the next word? What's the next word? Demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Where, there's jealous, where jealousy or selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and what? A couple of evil things? Every evil thing. Isn't it interesting that jealousy and selfish ambition are the door that, that, the door that opens to every evil thing? I propose to you that Jesus was actually crucified... Obviously, he was crucified because he was a Christ from God's perspective. But from man's perspective, I would propose to you that he's actually crucified because they were jealous of Jesus. That Jesus drew great crowds, large crowds. And the other thing is, he drew the same kind of crowds. Um, he drew the kind of crowds that, he drew the same people that the Pharisees were drawing. In other words, you can imagine that people that were interested in God before Jesus came in on the scene, probably went to the synagogue. So the people who, quote, were, were spiritual people, went to synagogues. So when Jesus came on the scene, and he started sharing about the kingdom of God, what crowds did the, you know, Jesus didn't draw the rodeo crowd. I'm not saying he didn't, but I'm saying the main thrust of his ministry was to people who were interested in God. You, do you see what I'm getting at? In other words, it's like, if somebody is, 
you know, the, if, somebody, if, if you don't like bull riding and somebody is a star bull rider, not a lot of chance you're going to be jealous of them. Because you don't like bulls. Look, I don't like bull. It's a bunch of bull. I don't like bull. You, you, you tend to be jealous. If you're going to be jealous, you tend to be jealous of people that have what you want. And I, I would propose to you that Jesus was most likely crucified because the Pharisees and scribes were jealous of the fact that the crowds that used to follow them now were following Jesus. And he was doing signs and wonders and miracles. And they were just giving him some Bible stories. And ultimately, they crucified him because they were jealous of him. What I'm getting at is that jealousy and murder are directly related. In fact, I was reading in Romans tonight, just as I sat down, I was reading Romans 1, listen to this. See if I can find it, yeah, verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he's talking about people that should have known that there was a God because they could look at creation, because God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in what God made. And, and then he goes, so they are, should be without excuse. Who is that? All the people who see, the, see God in creation and yet refuse to acknowledge him. And then he goes on to say that they, they made a God out of creation instead of worshiping the creator, they worship creation. So he's talking about those people and he says this about them. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God then gave them, gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which were not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy. Listen to this. Full of envy. I'm sorry. Greed. I, I, missed, I messed that up. Verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy. And the next one is murder, strife, deceit, malice, and gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know that the ordinances of God, although they know the ordinances of God, and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. What, did, did you get that? He gives a list of things that these people who operate under a depraved mind, the, the, the attitudes they have. And it includes uh, greed, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, insolent, arrogant, boastful, disobedient to parents. And he said, they know that people that act like this are worthy of death. And he includes people that are envious, and the next one is murder. And I was thinking tonight, we don't have to read all these, I've got a lot of scriptures, but you know, you remember Cain and Abel? the very first murder that ever took place on earth, what did it take place over? It took place over jealousy. See, God received Abel's offering, but did not receive Cain's. And whenever somebody has favor with God, and someone else doesn't, it creates tension. And how many of you know that there are actually levels of favor with God? That uh, Jesus increased with favor with God. I think, did you read that this morning? With favor with God and man. In other words, we all start with a certain level of favor. And, we're, and the goal, one of the goals of our life is to grow in favor with God and grow in favor with man. In other words, God loves us all the same, but he favors us differently. And part of the, I, I think that the discerning of spirits 
is actually where Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is where he says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. But the verse before that, verse 16 says, we no longer know each other after the flesh, but after the spirit. I believe that the discerning of spirits isn't just to discern evil spirits. I believe that the gift of discernment discerns the favor that's on someone's life so that you can behave properly towards them. In other words, when somebody comes in the room and Jesus gave this illustration about being invited to this rectangular table. Remember, you come to this, the guest's house and you take a seat that's too hot. You know the story, right? And Jesus talked about make sure that you take the lowest seat so that the, your, so the guests can say, come up higher. I think that one of the things that we do uh, in the spirit, one of the, one of the things it means to be spiritual in my, in my estimation is to be able by the gift of discernment to discern what level of favors on someone so that you can behave properly. In other words, if somebody has more favor than you, the best thing to do is get low and receive. Are you following me at all? What happens when you don't, when you don't have discernment when you don't have, here's where I'm going. I think the gift of discernment can keep you out of jealousy. Because you realize that what's on that person's life is from God. And you don't want to mess with what's from God. But let me say this. Discernment anointed by jealousy is suspicion. When you have a problem, when you have an opinion that's negative about someone, your discernment sucks. Do not trust it. I'm telling you from experience. Like, I think I, I, think I have a really strong gift of discernment, but every time I have an issue with someone, my discernment is anointed by the wrong spirit. And that's, that, that spirit anoints the gift of, of discernment, but it becomes suspicion. Instead of being used for God, it's being used for the enemy. How does the accuser accuse, God, accuse us before God day and night when he was thrust down from God? I'll tell you how he accuses us day and night. He sends Christians. He sends people who have access to God because he doesn't. And they carry his words to God. Turn to um, 1 Samuel chapter 18. But when you talk, when you're jealous and you talk, let me say this. When you're jealous and you talk, it's called gossip. Let me, let me just say that one more time. The manifestation when you open your mouth and you're jealous is called gossip. Gossip is a manifestation of jealousy. If you want to read a bunch more scriptures, we could all connect them for you. But you can just trust me. That if you're jealous and you talk, it's called gossip. Because what comes out of your mouth is accusation and all the reasons why those people should not have what they have. Now, in, 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 18, you know the story of David and Goliath. It's probably one of the most, stories, most popular stories in the Bible. And this is, this is when David is coming back from the battle of just killing, and he just killed Goliath. And it's, uh, did I tell you 1 Samuel 18? And it's verse 6. They're coming back from the battle, and it says it happened when they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistines, that a woman came and, I'm sorry, that the women came out from all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul. Who were they coming out to meet? King Saul, with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang, and they played, and they said, Saul 
has slain his what? Thousands. And David has his ten thousands. When Saul became, then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, what? They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they ascribed thousands. Now what shall... What, what more shall they do but give him the kingdom? Verse 9. Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now, depending on what translation you have, some translations say, and Saul looked at David, or Saul was jealous with David from that day on. The word suspicion there and, uh, and the word jealousy could be interchanged. From that day on, Saul was jealous of David. Now, let's look at the next verse. Now, it came about on the next day, It came about, okay, what's happening? He's suspicious, he's jealous, and suspicious. And the next day, the very next day, it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mildly upon Saul. An evil spirit from God came mildly on Saul. And you can read the rest of the story there. We won't do it tonight. But from there, what does he try to do? Tries to kill David. I'm telling you that the spirit of murder and the spirit of jealousy and the spirit of suspicion, they're all cousins. And when you open that door, you go, well, I, I've never thought about, you know, I've been jealous of people. I've never thought about killing them. You, maybe you never thought about taking a gun and killing them, but you have thought about murdering their reputation, destroying their ability to be better than you. I'm really concerned about this in, in, uh, right now. I feel like this is a prophetic declaration and not a teaching. I feel like the Lord is... You know, in fact, I don't feel this way. I know this for a fact. The Lord has opened the door and he's promoting us. He's doing it. We haven't. In fact, to tell you the truth, um, and, and I attribute this to Bill's strength, Bill's worked really hard. I think our whole team has, but this has really been a place where Bill specifically has led us in. He, Bill is really sensitive to self-promotion. He really, he's really over and over for all the years I've been here, in fact, even before that, but especially since I've been here, he's told us over and over, let, do not promote ourselves. Do not, do not do big advertising campaigns. When we were started to school, Bill's like, I, you know what, let's just do word of mouth. If you want to put something on our own website, that's fine. Don't send out big, and he's, he's, he's been really sensitive. Let's grow organically. Let's not, let's not our reputation outgrow our personhood. Let's not have, uh, let's not have, you know, let's not have a, a, a bigger persona on the outside than we are on the inside. And he's been really sensitive to that. And I think that's been really important. And you, you know what happens, and I shared this the other day, but with the, with, the, uh, with the invention of the internet and media and television and all these other things, especially the internet lately, all you need is a great webmaster to make you look like you're some huge whatever, business, ministry, you can look like you're this huge thing, and it's like the Wizard of Oz. Behind the curtain, there's just a little man pulling the strings. And the problem with that is that, your, is that your image can get bigger than your reputation. You know, image, idol. And, and it's really important that we, and this is just a warning for all of us personally as well as corporately, but we don't want to get bigger on the outside than we are on the inside. That's just a, it, it's not, listen, if you get bigger on the outside than you are on the inside, it's just a matter of time. It's not, are you going to fall? It's just, when are you going to fall? And so I think that Bill has been the real leader in this, in that just, let's just stay low. Let's let the Lord promote us. 
Let's grow organically. Let's not do extra stuff to try to make us look big. Let's, let's, you know, let's work with excellence. And, um, and let's let the Lord promote us. Uh, and so we're in this season where the Lord is promoting us. Now, I'm not saying that we've done everything perfectly. I think Bill would agree with that. I don't think we've done everything perfectly. I don't mean we've never, ever done anything we shouldn't have. Of course, that would be... That would be dumb to think that everything's been done perfectly. But I think we've done it with the right heart. I think we've worked to protect our innocence. But in that, in fact, let me just read you a few scriptures. Um, in, um, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Yeah, here it is. Um, in Luke 14, 11, for everyone, Jesus said this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who, uh, who humbles himself shall be Exalted. Jesus said that. First Peter 5, 6, Peter said this, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. James 4, 10, so, so Jesus said this, Peter said this, and James said this, Humble yourselves in the, in the presence of the Lord and he will what? Exalt you. So how many of you know that humility is the process to exaltation? Remember that Jesus humbled himself even to the point of, the, of death, and what does Philippians said? So therefore God highly exalted him. In other words, the reward of humility is that you get exalted. It's important that, that, we, that we understand that this is God's way, that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And when you humble yourself, you don't stay low, you stay humble, but you don't stay low forever because when God sees humility, he rewards it with exaltation. When, when God makes somebody great, you can, you can bet that it, it went through the door of humility. That the camel got on his knees, so to speak. That the, that, the, that the king spent some time in the wilderness with sheep by himself. This is just the process of God. That God looks at humility and he goes, that's the person I can exalt. But the point is, is this, that God wants to exalt people. Just like you want, you know, you go up, it's, it's, you know, we've talked about this lots of times. People sing a great song. You know, I've been in churches, um, not so much lately, but when I first started to travel, I'd, I'd go to churches where, you know, they do a great job with worship, you know. And the worship leader, you know, when it's over, you just want to clap. You're like, that was amazing. Especially if someone did it, you know, did some kind of a solo or something, you know, that was like they did today with the uh, Christmas Songs, you know, I mean, and what um, Tiffany did. I mean, that, there's just something wrong with not clapping. I've been in places where somebody does something like that, and I'll stand up and I'm fly, gotta fly. Dang, flies. And there, there's, an, there's an unspoken message. We don't, we don't want to give glory to someone because it'll take it from God. I got a little message for you. The ability to do whatever it is they did came from God. You know, when we go to our children's games, like, you know, our kids play soccer and basketball and stuff, and they played just about every sport when they were young, our, our, our boys and girls did. And I mean, I remember Bill says this a lot. Bill's kids played baseball a lot, and when they would do something amazing, Bill would turn to the to the rest of the people in the stands and say, whose son is that? 
I just have this picture in my mind when somebody does something amazing. I don't mean it has to be on stage, of course, because that's just a small part of where we live. But when, when, something, when we do something amazing, and I, I mean something amazing for God can be, you go out of your way and you're like, you, you need a cup of water, you need five bucks, and God goes, whose son is that? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I think God's the, I think God's the, most, the proudest parent in the stands going, who made that kid? Who gave that kid that gift? I don't think God's like, oh, he's stealing something from me. When your kids do something amazing, it, it lends glory to you. I don't even think you have to go, I just want to praise God for this. He gave me the strength. Listen, everybody knows you couldn't do that. And we want to create a culture. We want a culture where people can become great. I remember when we were in Australia, when, um, I think it was Bill and I, we did this leaders uh, advance or something. We spoke to leaders, I remember. And I was talking about the subject of greatness. And I was, and I, I was trying to use examples. I said, who, um, there's a couple hundred leaders there. I said, like, like we have Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and, and, and Britain has you know, Winston Churchill and South Africa has um, Nelson Mandela who are the heroes of Australia? Who, who are your heroes? Because I was, was going to use an example, use them as an example, and they were, they were totally quiet. I said, no, just give me one. Can someone just stand up? Just go ahead and shout it out, their name. I, I don't know your, your, your history. It was totally quiet. A really tension in the room. And I'm like... So, and I went to say it again, and the, one of the leaders from the front row whispered, Chris, we don't have heroes. And so I kind of moved closer. I said, what? He said, we don't have heroes. It's culturally wrong. It's called the tall poppy syndrome. And he said, I'll tell you about it later. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> See why you guys haven't done anything amazing around here? I didn't say that. I didn't say that. It's interesting, and uh, really, honestly, I see a great move of God in Australia now. Hillsong and, and what God's doing in Australia is amazing. And I, I think it's, it, God really is moving there. So please, uh, that was disrespectful, and I didn't mean it that way. But it is, it is interesting. I said this to them. They started as a prison colony. And I said, you guys are going to have to break out of that prison mindset. Because <laughs> that tall poppy syndrome thing is a slave's mindset. One of the things we do to, see, there's, there's, there's ways to deal with jealousy that are healthy, and there's ways to deal with jealousy that aren't. One of the ways to deal with jealousy that aren't, that isn't healthy, is to make sure that nobody does anything that you're jealous of. And that's called communism. See, communism, communism. See, if we're, if we're all paid the same and nobody does anything that no one else does, that's one way we deal with jealousy. We change the structure to deal with the heart problem. So whenever somebody starts to get great, we just figure out some way to change the structure so that they can't be great. See, in America, if you become a great business person, we're going to tax the heck out of you because you have somehow ripped off the poor people. It doesn't matter that you're employing 10,000 people. 
in your job and that you took the risk and that you went through hell to get there, that matters not. Once you get money and once you become successful, then you should pay more, higher percentage tax than everyone else because obviously you've done something wrong to have come to this place of prominence. But it's interesting when Jesus, the way that Jesus behaved towards people who became great. He gave people minas and talents, you know, those both, uh, uh, that's money. And he gave one, you know, one, 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 three, one, uh, one, 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 three, one, five. And what happens when he comes back? The guy that has five made five more. You know the story. The guy that made three, three more. And the guy that had one, what did he do? He buried it because he was afraid, right? And who did Jesus give the guy that, that didn't do well? Who did he give it to? He gave it to the guy that had ten. Did you notice that Jesus didn't have any problem, like when he went someplace special, like he was going to raise a dead person or go up on the Mount Transfiguration, did you notice he didn't take 12 people with him? He only took three. Did you notice he always took the same three, didn't rotate them? Does that ever bother you? Does it ever bother you that he took Peter, James, and John one time and then he didn't take like Matthew, Judas, and you know, I can't even think of you know, any of the others, but... Does it, does it ever bother you that, like, it wasn't fair? Jesus wasn't fair. I mean, Jesus took three guys everywhere. He's like, hey, uh, you nine, wait outside. We're going to do something important here. We're going to raise a dead girl. We need people who have great faith. So, uh, yeah, Matthew, Judas, you guys, you wait outside. Peter, James, John, come with me. Hey, um, I'm going to have an encounter with God. Uh, it's going to be pretty heavy. Peter, James, and John, you come with me. Does, has it ever dawned on you that nine guys always got 86 whenever Jesus was doing something <laughs> awesome? Did you notice that Jesus didn't seem to apologize for the fact that he had a special relationship with three, even though he hung out with 12? Do, do you think that that might have created some of the tension? you think that the way Jesus like, favored three might have created some of the tension why they're always arguing over who's the greatest because Jesus seemed to favor three? Did you notice that Jesus still favored them all the way through the end of the chapters? I, I don't know if you thought about that, but most of the pastoral people would be like, that doesn't seem fair, you need to rotate the people. Listen, you took Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain, now you're going to raise a dead person, now you're going to take Matthew and... And, and, you know, whoever the other guys are. Shoot. You know what? The, I don't even know their names. You put Ringo in there, they could have had a band. Did, did, you, did you get the fact that Jesus doesn't apologize for favoring three people? Did you notice that Jesus creates a culture where, peop, where he favors people differently? And he does not apologize for it. But what is the side effects of favoring people differently? Well, one of the side effects is if you get in the flesh, you get jealous. Listen, this is kind of interesting. I just did a quick, I'll just give you a few. Matthew 18, 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Oh, sorry. I didn't write the next verse down. And it says that they said that because they were arguing about who was the greatest. Mark 9.34. But they kept silent, for on the way the disciples had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. An argument started among them as to which one of them might be the greatest. 
Luke chapter 22, verse 24. There arose a dispute among the disciples as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. And by the way, I think it's eight times in the Gospels that it records that they argued about who was the greatest. What, what's the, what, what is the side effect of an empowering culture? Well, the side effect of an empowering culture is, is you don't watch over your heart. Jealousy, envy, strife, and contention. What's the side effect of a controlling culture? You don't ever get anybody, anything done. Nobody ever thinks. No, there's no innovation. There's no creation. There, there, there's, no, there's no such thing as, as changing a city or rocking a nation or, or, or inventing anything or doing anything like that because everybody's the same. It's called communism, and communism doesn't work. But what's the side effect of creating an empowering culture? Well, if you don't watch over your heart, you get jealous and bitter and envious. And, and, and let me tell you what I see happening not what I see happening. What I see happen, what I watch happen, is that Peter, if people stop taking the three. We create a culture where we don't do that anymore. We're like we make it all fair. And we think that's the kingdom. Well, God is just. God is just. To whom much is given, much is required. And the other nine will not be judged like the three because they were given more, so they required more. It all comes out fair in the end, but not on this planet. It is not true that all men were created equal. Of course, we know that when those words were spoken by our forefathers, they were talking about color and gender. It is true that all colors and all genders and all ethnic groups are created equal in the sense that, they're, that God doesn't favor one color or one gender over another. But it is not true that God created all people equally. He's going to judge them with equality, but he didn't create them equally. It's also true that there's no one like you. So when you're jealous of someone, you've forgotten that you're the best you you can be. Jealousy says at its core, you getting favor, you got it from me. You stole it from me. See, it says that there's only enough to go around. There's, only, there's not enough to go around. So if you get exalted and I'm jealous of you, it means that I think that you got jealous at my expense. I mean, sorry, you got, you got favored at my expense. That's why I'm jealous of you. Because you got favored, it means I won't. And Jesus said, I'm giving you an opportunity to get favor too. How do you do that? You serve people who have it. You, that's called humility. You humble yourself, and then what happens? That's the path to exalting. But I'll tell you a, a real path to make sure that you never get exalted, and that is make sure that you stay jealous of all the people who God has exalted, and then you will never get exalted unless you exalt yourself, and you will have a fall. Huh. That's actually a good word. It's a good word of warning, I know, but it is, it is true. Graham Cook said this, some people are so committed to their immaturity, it's scary. Someone else said, you can look awful good depending on who you compare yourself to. I think that as we move forward in this time of favor that we have, that God's, and we, you know, is that favor going to last forever? I hope it does. Is it going to last 
a week. I, I think it has. I think we. I think we determine how long this favors on our life by how we steward it. If favor takes us to arrogance, God goes, you can't handle it, and we move back into, you know, you either humble yourself or you get humbled, right? That's called humiliated. Like when God does it from the outside, it's called humiliated. When you do it from the inside, it's called you humbled yourself. So I, I I think you can stay in a season of favor all your life is if while you're, you're favored, you stay humble. And you use your favor to help other people get exalted. But I think the moment that you, that your favor takes you to arrogance, God goes, time for the cycle to start over. Right? Isn't that the story of Nebuchadnezzar? God exalted him. He gets to the top. He goes, I'm amazing. I'm great. I'm, you know, he, ha- he really has the same opinions of himself after God restores him as he did before. But the... When he gets restored, he realizes where the source of his greatness is. Forgetting the source of your greatness is the key to arrogance and pride and ultimately jealousy and suspicion. Now, God can cure jealousy and suspicion by just taking favor off of everybody. Or we can create structures where the people in our culture who are getting exalted, we reduce them to make the people who are jealous feel comfortable. They did that. Did you notice that they did that in First Kings chapter 15? That King Saul, I'm sorry, Samuel was the prophet. I'm almost done. Samuel was the prophet. He was the leader of their country. He was the prophet and judge. And he was getting very old. And his sons, his two sons were wicked. And they were going to take his place. Do you remember this? And it says that when the elders of Israel realized that Samuel was about to die. And that his successors were his sons. That Samuel was going to appoint his sons as successors. And they were both evil. It says they came to to Samuel. I'm sorry. Yeah, they came to Samuel. The elders came to Samuel and said, give us a king. Like other nations. Why? They had a judge. They had a prophet who was a judge. Are you following me? Have I lost you? They had a prophet who was a judge. And what was the problem? What was the problem? The problem was is that the two people who were going to fill the role of prophet, they were both wicked. So instead of the elders dealing with the heart issue, they changed the structure. What should they have done? Was their concern real? It was real. Samuel's two sons were both wicked. So instead of saying, going to Samuel and go, hey, we got a real problem with you appointing your sons, that doesn't sound like a good plan. Like your boys are like prostituting the women and stealing the sacrifices. I don't think they should be your successors. Listen, why don't you take some of the sons of the prophets you're raising up here and why don't you put them in your place? Put one of them in your place. Don't put your sons, okay? Like we're good with the prophet being over us, but we're not good with it being your sons. But they don't have the courage to confront Samuel. So instead they go, it's, we think it's time to have a king like other nations. And God says this to, Sam, to Samuel. Samuel, it's all right, give him a king, but they didn't reject you, they rejected me. Isn't it funny he never says to Samuel, hey, I have the same concerns about your sons. Now, did God want to, the, Samuel's sons to be king? I doubt it. They were, God's the one who said they were both wicked. So what was the solution? Solution was relational. Confront 
the problem, and the problem was two people. But what did they do? They changed the structure so his sons wouldn't qualify. Are you with me? In other words, in, if we, if, if, one of the ways you can deal with jealousy is you don't have three favored disciples. We're all equal. But you know what happens? No one gets to go to the mountain. No one gets to see your dead person raised. You know why? Because we don't want to make the other nine jealous. We don't want to feed their jealousy, so we just take away mountain experiences and dead raising experiences. Jesus doesn't by himself, doesn't get to bring three people in. And by the way, did you notice that by the time you get to the book of Acts, it doesn't seem like those three are necessarily any more favored than the other nine? And what I'm getting at is this, is that I'm just guessing. This is a guess, but this is an opinion. The Bible doesn't say this. Most likely those three were humble, took what Jesus gave them, and began to pour it into the other nine so that they could grow. And I say that because that's the way that you get to keep yours, is you give it away. I've watched Bill do it year after year after year. I've watched God favor him, and I've watched him give it away to other people. I've watched him refuse to be jealous of other people. We've got to make sure. Okay, you can clap. That's fine. What I really want you to do. Okay, that's good. I'm awesome. I rock. Okay. Okay, here we go through another season. Lord, no, I'm all right. I'm I'm terrible. I'm a bad guy. Please let me serve Bill the rest of my life and Danny too and, and whoever else. God. No, on a serious note. Yes, that's a serious note. On another serious note, I want us just to take a minute to look in our own hearts. Because the tares and the wheat, they look alike when they're young. And what I mean is this, is that confidence, which we definitely need, it's a fruit, confidence is the fruit of faith. Let me say that again. True confidence is the fruit of faith. Let me make that, let me just rein that in a little bit more. Godly confidence is the fruit of faith. That, that, should be, that should be right. Godly confidence is really the fruit of faith. In other words, if you have faith, you will be confident. But how many of that confidence and arrogance, they look alike when they're growing up? You can't, you can't really see them until start, they start to bear fruit. And you know this, it's been said many times, but terrors, the Jews call tares bastard wheat because it looks like wheat until, until it starts to get the help me the kernels on it and the wheat bends over and the tares stay up. So I don't think you can even know the difference in your own heart unless the Holy Spirit shows you. But I think if you ask him, he shows you. So why don't you stand, and why don't we do this just really exciting exercise together? We've all been looking forward to all night. Why don't you pray and see if the person next to you is arrogant? 
Use your gift of discernment and tell them what you think. No, that's not what we're going to do, of course. We're going to pray right now. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to show us if there's any jealousy, strife, contention. You know, I, I named a couple of things, but we're, we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit if there's any jealousy or envy, bitterness, um, you know, the list. We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit. David said this way, search me, Lord, and see if you find anything in me. And if you do, lead me out of it. Lead me into the everlasting way. So let's just pray right now. Have, have, let me ask you a question before we do this. How many of you have ever been jealous in your life? <laughs> I've experienced it once in my lifetime. So it, it, one more time, just put your hand up. If you've ever been jealous in your life. Okay, so everyone's experienced it, right? Let's just be real with each other. If that thing is hanging on you right now, that's what we're asking. We're not asking, like, have you ever experienced this in your life? Because you just saw, I think, every single person in this room raise their hand. So, I mean, we've all, we've all had it happen in our life. So let's not pretend that we're this perfect person that never has it happen. The question isn't, do you, have you ever had it happen? That's, you understand, that's not what we're looking for. We're not looking to dig up old dead bones or something you did 10, 10 years ago or something you repented of last week. We're talking about something that is currently growing in your life and maybe you haven't been aware of it till now, or maybe you have. But either way, we're just saying, Holy Spirit, I don't want this junk in my life. I want to create a seedbed where you could plant things in me and give me a reward. Because how many of you know the book of Revelation, the last chapter said, he's coming back and his reward is with him. So how many of you know that he's the God of reward? And so in order for God to reward us, we need, he needs to make sure that it, does, that it doesn't kill us, Right? Okay, so why don't you just close your eyes for a minute. There's nothing spiritual about closing your eyes. just gives you a little bit of privacy. And, and if you see any pride, any, any jealousy, uh, we're mostly, I mean, we're looking for whatever the Holy Spirit's looking for, but I, I'm, I'm really feeling, I've been feeling this for a while, I really feel like jealousy has, has, has kind of gotten in among us. I know it has in my own heart, and I just worked, you know, I, I don't think I could be up here sharing this, honestly, Unless I felt like, you know, a few months ago, the Lord just really convicted me of it. I went to a place to some counselors uh, for about three days, and they really identified some, uh, not some, a real root of jealousy in my own life. And I'll just be totally honest with you. And I worked through it for a couple of days. They walked me through some stuff. To tell you the truth, I never, I know, I've seen jealousy in my life. Let me just be clear. I never saw that jealousy in my life. I never saw it. When they started pointing out, in fact, they got a prophetic word about jealousy in my life before I got there. And they pointed it out, and I'm like, okay, I believe you, but I don't see it. By the third day, I was like, get this thing off of me. <laughs> Where does they come from? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Get it off of me. It's like the, the Spider-Man movie where that thing, black thing was on him. I'm like, get it off of me. <laughs> oh, you know, when real repentance happens, you aren't trying to blame someone else when you really are repentant. You're like, they may, be, they may be 80% of the problem and I'm 20, but real repentance feels like I'm the whole problem. And so I walked out of there feeling like, oh my God, I don't want to ever do that again. And I'm like, okay, Lord, what do I have to do to not have that happen to me again? And the Lord's like, weed your garden. You know what that means? It means there's other seeds that could grow again. And I have to just weed my garden. Are you following me? Okay, so that's what we're doing right now. So close your eyes, bow your head for a minute. I'm not going to have you come forward or do anything like that. But I just, I just feel like there's an anointing in the room 
for this revelation. I've been feeling it for a while, and I've been, I've been waiting for this night for probably three or four weeks. I, I felt like I needed to do the first stuff first, talking about vision and all, and get to this place where we deal with the, the side effects of greatness. And so let's just pray. Holy Spirit, right now, just say this. Holy Spirit, search my heart. If you find anything wrong in there, I don't want it there. I pray that you would convict me of sin. If there's jealousy or envy or pride or arrogance or anything like that, you have permission right now to show me that and deliver me from it. Because I know tonight there's an anointing in the room to pull this thing out of my soil. And you said that repentance is a gift. And you're giving me a gift tonight. And I don't want to miss this opportunity. Okay, so we're just going to be quiet for a couple of minutes. And just let the Holy Spirit search your heart. I know this is kind of the uncomfortable. When there's silence in a, in a group this big, people get, okay, we need to do something. It's like, there's going to be a couple minutes of silence. We're going to let the Holy Spirit search for a couple minutes, Okay. about another minute. Okay, keep your head bowed. If you'd like to say, yeah, I see something that needs work in my heart. Uh, no, that's, that's too kind. That, that's, not, that's not what the Holy Spirit's asked me. You see sin in your heart. You see sin in your heart, because we all need work. You you see sin in your heart, and you want to repent of it. I want you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand. You see sin in your life, especially in these areas that we're talking about, and you want to repent of it. Just raise your your hand. Okay, you can go ahead and put your hand down. I'm going to pray for you right now. In fact, why don't I just lead you in this prayer? Say, Holy Spirit, I see sin in my life. I ask you to forgive me. I agree with you that it's wrong, that's killing me, that's hurting other people, and that's not the kingdom. And I wasn't born into this to be like this. Right now, I, I just I ask you to forgive me for it. I changed my mind about this attitude. I confess it as sin. It's not a mistake. It's not a little something I need to fix. It's sin, it's wrong. And I admit it's my fault. I've allowed it in my life. But I need help getting it out of my life. So I ask for your grace right now. For a change to happen in my life. For this thing to be weeded out of the soil of my heart. 
and for it never to be planted back. So I give you my heart right now and ask you to come in and pull these weeds out of your garden. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I agree to tell somebody that you trust that, that I've repented about my sin. I agree to tell somebody about my sin that I've repented so that I can be accountable and walk in a clean, on, in a, on a, with a clean heart. In Jesus' name. Now let me just pray for you. Father, I pray right now for all these people that have asked for forgiveness that you would give them grace. And Father, I realize that we all know the rules. It doesn't often help to know the rules without grace to keep them, to be changed. Father, we pray. I pray for this grace, the grace that I, that I found when I was with the Kelstras to change. I pray for that same grace to be, to be on my sisters, my brothers, my fellow fathers, fellow mothers here. Father, that leaders, servants alike. Lord, I just pray that you would just pour out your grace on them, on us, that we could walk with a great call, walk humbly, honorably, and earnestly desire the people around us to prosper also. Earnestly desire them to outgrow us. Earnestly celebrate their victories without an ounce of, that should have been me. That, that stole something from, from, my, from my bank account. God, I pray that, that we would guard our hearts for from it flow all the issues of life. Father, we trust you with our life. We trust you to exalt us, as you said, in the proper time. You know the right time for us to be exalted, for us to be favored. You, you, you know when we should be favored, when we're ready, when it won't hurt us, we know, God, that, you're, that, you, that you give prosperity and you add no sorrow to it. You make a man rich and you add no sorrow to it. But, Lord, when we go after it ourselves, it always comes at a great cost of sorrow. Father, would you please help us to clean up our messes where jealousy or arrogance or strife or contention or gossip or pride have hurt other people because no one, no one ever sends by themselves. No one ever sends without hurting other people. Lord, I pray that you would just give us wisdom to clean up any mess that we may have made in our family or with people that we are even acquainted with. Give us wisdom as how to, how to actually bring forth fruit of repentance. And God, let right now, I pray that every single person who raised their hand and repented would feel a great sense of peace and that a great, great weight would be lifted from their shoulders. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you just, let's just give Jesus a hand right now. Because of, Lord, we just thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this session. For more information, please visit our website at www.moralrevolution.com.